welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, we have part two of the two-part series on an important turning point in the Revolutionary War, when the British burned Danbury, Connecticut. Here again to help tell the story of the significance of this event is Danbury historian Bill Devlin, author of We Crowned Them All and Danbury's Third Century. Now the conclusion of The Weekend, The British Burned Danbury. In part one of our series, we took you through the path of the British from their landing party at Campo Beach in present-day Westport, north through Weston, Reading, Bethel, and finally to Danbury. We told you about British raid leader General William Tryon, a man with a reputation for being especially ruthless in battle. The newly appointed governor of New York State had been sent by British Force Commander William Howe inland to the military supply depot at Danbury to wipe out the food, medical, and ammunition supply capabilities of the strategically located town. Well, the weekend assault had begun on Thursday evening, April 24, 1777. That's when 2,000 British troops and a dozen warships left New York City for Long Island Sound and Campo Beach. They'd been spotted off the coast of Norwalk early Friday morning, April 25th. The ships landed Friday afternoon, and the British started marching inland immediately, spending Friday night in Weston. The troops arrived in Danbury around 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon. General Tryon established his headquarters on South Street in a home owned by Nehemiah Dibble. Dibble was a Tory, and Tryon felt right at home. The rest of the troops marched down Main Street. Near the town green, they stopped and shot 12-pound cannonballs down the street. It was an intimidation factor for those who had not yet fled the city. The troops continued to march along Main Street's. At the intersection with Bounton Street stood a house belonging to a captain in the colonial militia, Ezra Starr. In that house were four very young men, one of them a black slave. As the British marched by, gunfire rang out from the house. Now, no British soldiers were known to have been killed, but three of the four who shot at the British were killed, and their bodies were left in the house while the British burned it to the ground. They included Starr's son, Eliza, the slave, and a young man who had just walked to town to get a gallon of molasses when the British arrived and he had ducked into that house. The fourth young man was taken prisoner. Aides to General Tryon established a northern headquarters at Benjamin Knapp's house at the intersection of Main and White Streets. Knapp's wife was ill at the time and bedridden. The aides commandeered every room in Knapp's house except the one where his wife was. The troops killed several of Knapp's cattle for food, butchering the animals on the floor of his house. The bloodstains and dents from the butcher's knife are said to have been visible for years to come, in fact, until the day the house itself was torn down. The British set up lookouts, or pickets, at roads leading into Danbury. Farmers from the countryside creeped as close as reasonably possible and took shots at those picket guards, but none were wounded. There's one interesting story, though, about a very physically strong man named Porter who was walking towards Danbury when he came across several guard pickets. They told him to halt. He said, what for? They said, you are a prisoner, he replied. Well, I guess not, as he continued walking towards them. They warned him that they would stick him through and through if he didn't stop. 
He grabbed one of the redcoats and threw him into the other two, knocking all three to the ground. Behind them, horrified soldiers came to their aid and arrested Porter. He was taken to the infamous British Sugar House Prison in New York City, but was eventually released. Porter was just one of three prisoners taken to Danbury. Two others, Benjamin Sperry and a man named Barnum, were also captured. Barnum died of starvation in the Sugar House Jail. A wrinkle emerged, this one from the heavens above. It started to rain, and rain heavily. Dirt streets became very muddy and difficult to navigate. The British set out to destroy the supplies that were being held in barns and other structures around Danbury. In the Episcopal Church, also an Anglican church, they took the supplies out of the church before burning them. Same story with the barn behind Dibble's house. They spared the barn since Dibble was a Tory, but they burned the supplies in his barn despite the rain. Many of the Tories had to go along with the Patriot supply effort in Danbury because they were so outnumbered and they didn't want to leave their homes in Danbury. And that would explain why Dibble and the Episcopal Church had those supplies inside their facilities. Other supply locations were found and the contents burned. One on Main Street was full of grain and meat. In fact, fat from burning carcasses ran ankle-deep in the streets. Well, along the way, the British troops found some supplies that would turn out to be problematic for them. Rum and wine. A good number of the 2,000 men ended up drinking to excess. They were said to be in a riotous state of discipline throughout Saturday evening and into the wee hours of Sunday morning. Drunken soldiers roamed up and down Main Street in squads, singing army songs, shouting coarse speeches, hugging each other, swearing, and yelling. By late Saturday night, General Tryon, though, was starting to get intelligence reports that troubled him. Militia under the command of Generals Worcester, Arnold, and Silliman were headed that way. They had been seen in Reading. Even worse area farmers were starting to gather en masse and were headed to Danbury to protect it. Well, Tryon wasn't expecting this. He had planned to spend a leisurely weekend in Danbury before marching his troops back to their ships in Campo Bay. But these reports changed all that. By one o'clock Sunday morning, the reports that were reaching Tryon were that Worcester and Arnold were just a couple of miles away in Bethel. By 2 o'clock that morning, Tryon had ordered all the houses where Patriot officers lived marked with lime chalk. One by one, they were set ablaze. In all 19 houses and 22 stores and barns were burned to the ground by the British. This is a list of what was destroyed. 4,000 barrels of beef and pork, 100 large containers of biscuits, 90 barrels of rice, 120 bottles of rum, 30 bottles of wine, several large stores where bulk quantities of wheat, oats, and Indian corn were being stored, large quantities of sugar and molasses, 20 casks of coffee, 15 large casks of medicines of all kind, 10 barrels of saltpeter for gunpowder, 1,000 tents, a complete printing press, tar, tallow, and 5,000 pairs of shoes and stockings. Connecticut had been known as the Provision State because it was supplying the Patriot forces with food, primarily from Litchfield County. Danbury and Sharon were both supply hubs for the Continental Army. Danbury was also the location of a large military hospital. And there was an industrial center in Danbury where craftsmen created everything from shoes to military hardware and ammunition. 
The interesting point here, says Bill Devlin, is that both the hospital and industrial center escaped any damage at the hands of British raiders. The industrial center was located less than a mile from the town center, just over a hill. That's where they were. <laughs> the British never found them. And the British never found the military hospital. The, the doctor who was operating, who was in charge of it, he cleared out. A Dr. Foster ran the hospital, and he had managed to move most of the items in his facility north to New Milford, ahead of the advancing British. One of the many stories told about this raid involved a young girl from neighboring New York State, Sybil Luddington. The Luddington family lived 15 miles to the west of Danbury in rural farm country. As messengers were dispatched to tell supporters far and wide about Danbury's plight and encourage them to ride to her aid, one reached the Luddington house. Colonel Henry Luddington was the commander of the Dutchess County Militia. Hearing the news, Sybil, just 16 years old at the time, offered to ride around Putnam County in the pouring rain and wake up farmers to alert them to the problem. As legend has it, Sybil rode 40 miles in the rain and alerted patriots to Danbury's plight, much like Paul Revere had done outside Boston. Well, Bill says it's a great story, but might just be a wonderful example of oral history that we'll just have to take on faith. You know, it's not really known. Again, it's, I think it's one of these stories that was generated by the raid. There's one, one or more in every town. And some of them can be verified and some of them can't. There's no reason to believe it and there's no reason not to believe it. He says there's no contemporary evidence that can corroborate Sybil's ride. Yet a statue was erected of her on her horse, which stands in the Danbury Library Plaza in downtown commemorating her bravery. One problem with all of the responding militia, though, is that they simply got a late start. It's almost like you step on a bee's nest and all of a sudden they're swarming. And this is what kind of happened with the Danbury raid. Once the British troops were there, people from militias and people from all over western Connecticut and New York State just came. And of course, uh, most many of them came late. For example, the Putnam County farmers didn't make it until the British were almost back on their ships at Campo Beach. And perhaps most remarkably of all, the militia under Worcester, Arnold, and Silliman were just a couple of miles away in Bethel when they stopped for the night. Now, they were exhausted, having ridden all the way from New Haven. However, had they known just how drunk and susceptible the British troops were, might have found the strength within themselves to venture just two more miles into Danbury and confront them. And the outcome may have been a whole lot different. Well, Sunday morning, April 27, 1777, Danbury was in flames. The last of the British had pulled out of town just before daybreak. Most headed towards where Danbury Airport is today, on into the village of Ridgebury, and from there to the small town of Ridgefield. Benedict Arnold and Gold Silliman took their troops toward Ridgefield to confront the British there. Worcester pursued the British troops from the rear with his men. The British went through an area of Danbury that is now known as Myrie Brook. At the time, it was called Wolf Pond Run. Some patriots had removed the small bridge that crossed Wolf Pond Run before the British got there. The British tried to get their cannon across, but it got mired down in the brook, Hence the name change to Myrie Brook. Well, on Route 116, North Salem Road between Ridgebury and Ridgefield, Worcester came up too close to the retreating British soldiers. He came around a corner and they were right there. 
Before Worcester could escape, he was shot. He was carried back to the Dibble House on South Street, the same house where Tryon had set up his headquarters. He died just a few days later on May 2nd at the age of 66. It was ironic that Worcester should die in a Tory household, but with most of the Patriot homes having been burned, there wasn't much in the way of choice remaining. There's an amazing story that deserves to be told about a farmer who came to Danbury's aid that day. 75-year-old Peter Peck rode all the way from Litchfield over several days. He was a legend throughout the Litchfield Hills with his rifle. Bill says he made it to the area while the British were still making their way back to their ships. He was so good of a sharpshooter that when the British were retreating back down through like the Wilton area, Weston or somewhere like that, he's he's picking them off so so efficiently that finally some of the Redcoats come over and basically beat him over the head and kill him. When the all-clear was finally signaled and Danbury residents started to return, Bill says there was one thing that became abundantly clear about who were Patriots and who were Tories. Some of the houses were still standing, so they were obvious, you know, it was obvious that the Tories lived there. And he says that this fact was not lost on militia responding from Goshen, Connecticut. They get there way late. The whole town is burned. British have long gone. One of them goes, well, look, if it's, if it's a house that's still standing, it must belong to a Tory. So I can take anything I want. So he basically does a little bit of looting. When Dibble returned to town, a number of patriots went to pay him a visit. They grabbed him, carried him to the Still River, and dunked him repeatedly as punishment for being a Tory. Other Tories were told to leave town and never come back. A religious group that had settled in Danbury called the Sandemanians also were frowned upon. They believed in the separation of church and state, and so they wouldn't take a stand. They were considered suspect for that reason. You have a tragedy like that happens, as we know from 9-11, you get a response of either you're with us or against us. Incidentally, I'll have a separate episode coming up on the Sandemanians, an unbelievable story all by itself. There was also the issue of financial losses suffered by the townspeople in defense of their country. The damage was pegged at over $30,000, which was a fortune in those days. In return, land grants were made, in many cases to Danburyans, in a section of modern-day Ohio west of Cleveland called Western Case Reserve. And a particular section of the reserve was called the Firelands. Some of the people from Danbury later went out there, mostly well after the Revolution, maybe 20, 30 years after the Revolution. You have a map of northern Ohio, read off the town names, and you feel like you're in Connecticut. Absent from this episode is the Battle of Ridgefield. Really more of a skirmish than a battle, but nevertheless a very important part of this story. So important that I'll devote a separate episode to it at a later date. For now, suffice it to say that when Danbury needed assistance from the Patriots in Connecticut and eastern New York State, they responded. Bill says one man's name will always go down in history as the hero that day. Worcester is the venerated hero of the of the whole thing. You know, Benedict Arnold was actually the guy who did all the strategy. <laughs> but Worcester, you know, Worcester was the martyr. Arnold played a more prominent role in the Battle of Ridgefield. In the meantime, Worcester has many things named after him in Danbury. A major hill, Worcester Heights, a separate Worcester Mountain, Worcester Street, and Worcester Cemetery, where Worcester is buried beneath a prominent monument. 
Most of these honors were bestowed upon Worcester around 80 years after the raid. At that time, the last of the Revolutionary War veterans would have been dying off, and there still would have been people alive whose parents fought in those battles. The raid and the subsequent Battle of Ridgefield claimed an estimated 200 soldiers on each side, including more than a dozen British officers. Now, technically, the British got what they came for. They put a serious dent in Danbury as a major supply depot for the Continental Forces. But the response of the American militia was way above and beyond what the British had anticipated. And perhaps the lesson that day was not one taught by Tryon, rather one that he learned. One thing we know for sure is that the British never raided Connecticut inland that far after that. All the other raids were coastal raids. And Howe never did pursue the option of going north along the Hudson River to cut off New England. Instead, he would head south towards Philadelphia. And six years later, the French, under General Rochambeau, would march through Danbury. They went to Yorktown, Virginia, to help finish off the British occupation of the colonies. On their way to Yorktown, they camped in Ridgebury. But on their way back, after helping to defeat the British, the French soldiers camped in Danbury. Where did they pitch their tents? Right on the other side of South Street from where Nehemiah Dibble's house was, the house where General David Worcester died. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for these two episodes about the British Bernie of Danbury, Danbury historian Bill Devlin. He's the author of We Crown Them All and Danbury's Third Century. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also in between episodes, you can check out my pages on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I have some photos supplementing these podcasts. Also, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an idea anytime you want of a story you'd like me to check out. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. Thank you.